Sunday. Let's pray and dig into the Word. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we go to your Word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. Uh, Lord, less of me, more of you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. So whenever we start a new book, I like to give a little bit of an introduction and kind of put it in its place when it comes to Scripture. So this book is invaluable instruction for believers on how to begin a ministry, be faithful during a ministry, and finish a ministry strong. Often people will teach this at like pastor's conferences or when people come uh, who are in leadership or people who serve in a church on how to, be, how to be faithful to begin in ministry and how to be faithful all the way through the ministry. It's a beginning, a middle, and the end. And here's what's true. We're going to see this in these 13 chapters that Nehemiah is going to be faithful, but he's going to face a lot of opposition. And as believers, as we are faithful to serve the Lord, we will face opposition. The enemy will always oppose where God is doing great things. Amen? So opposition from the enemy is almost, uh, it's not really a blessing, but I'm trying to think of another word. It's just a sign that God's doing something good. Amen? And so we're going to see, and not just, you know, a, a beginning and middle and end of serving in a church, but in a marriage or in raising your kids or in serving in the children's ministry. Whatever it may be, we want to be faithful. And the way that it begins, we first must respond to the calling God has placed upon our life. And we're going to see that in tonight's text, that Nehemiah is going to have a huge burden for Jerusalem after he finds out the shape that it's in. And a lot of, no doubt, tens of thousands of other people knew about it, but he's the one who stirred up about it. And we'll see in a moment, I tell him the message that the burden is the spawning ground of a calling, that often when we have a calling for something, God will stir us up about it. He'll give us a passion for it, a greater desire to see that ministry take place than somebody else who's not called to do it. You know, it comes out true, it's true with planting a church or anything else. So Nehemiah is often taught, again, as pastor's conferences. It's taught by churches as they enter into a new venture of faith, new ministries, a new building, etc. And as individuals, it's a fresh look and reminder of the beginning and faithfully serving and then finishing strong in the face, again, of great opposition, but also personal trials and struggles. So often what the enemy will do is he'll do everything he can to distract you. If he can't disqualify you, he'll try to distract you to take you away from what you're called to do. Uh, Time-wise, Nehemiah is a contemporary of Ezra and Malachi. His timeline comes right after Ezra ends, and it picks up where it left off. The events of Nehemiah take place, again, after Ezra, and the book of Ezra covers the rebuilding of the temple. We saw that in the last book and reestablishing worship. The book of Nehemiah is going to talk about rebuilding the cities and the walls that are around it. So quickly, a history lesson, then we'll get into the text. In 538 BC, Zerubbabel was the one who first brought people back after they'd been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. They'd been in exile because we saw in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, they were worshiping false idols. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come along and take them captive in three waves. So each of these waves took place, and at the third wave, at the end of it, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent back men, and they literally leveled Jerusalem. They leveled the temple to the ground. They tore down the walls around it. They destroyed everything and left it as a pile of rubble. And so after 70 years, Zerubbabel uh, gets the grace of God, and the king sends him back, and about 50,000 people go with him. And what that tells us is there could have been a million or more Jews in Babylon the most of them were so comfortable in Babylon, they didn't want to go home. They knew that, that Jerusalem was a mess. They got really comfortable hanging out in pagan idolatry land because it was very wealthy, and they didn't want to go home. And sadly, the same thing can happen to us. We can get so comfortable with the world that we cease to long for the things of God the way that we should. So 60 years later, after this rubble went, we saw Ezra. Now, when Ezra went, Zerubbabel went back and he rebuilt the temple. And or started to rebuild the temple. He put down the foundation, he started rebuilding it, and they started worshiping the Lord again. But 60 years went by, and they had gotten comfortable. And as we saw in Ezra, they even started marrying pagan wives. Remember that? And so, but Ezra went back with about 6,000 people, including women and children, and he came back not to rebuild the temple, but to reestablish worship and get their eyes 
back on the Lord. So some years later now, we get to 445 BC, and Nehemiah will come to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And why is a wall important? It's a good question right about now. Can I get an amen to that? What's amazing is a wall did two things. It protected and separated. What it did is it protected the people within the walls of Jerusalem so they could worship God and would not come under attack from the enemy. And it also separated them from a part of the world they needed to be separated from. At this point, it's been 150 years and the walls have never been rebuilt. So what's happening is every time they would build something up, People would come through, marauders would come through and steal from them and tear it all back down. So until the walls are put up, until, the, until they're separated and protected, Jerusalem has neither protection nor separation. So uh, Nehemiah will, will, like all who are faithfully serving the Lord, is going to face opposition. He's going to face attacks from the enemy using many different devices. He will be seen throughout this book just being under constant attack. The other thing we're going to see a lot is in 13 chapters, we're going to see Nehemiah pray 10 times. Now, Nehemiah is a man of action, but he's also a man of prayer. And the truth is, if you're a man of action or a woman of action without prayer, it probably won't come to much. We need to be people who pray first or led by the Lord, and we follow in his footsteps. Now, the book of Nehemiah can be broken down into two sections. In chapters 1 through 6, we see the construction of the walls of Jerusalem. And then in chapters 7 to 13, we're going to see the reinstruction of God's people in Jerusalem. So as we begin the book, we're about 1,000 years since Moses. We're about 455 years before Jesus. This is where we are in the timeline. Uh, Nehemiah and Esther and Ezra are the last three books that are historical and then after that, we have all these prophets who are living during this same time who are prophesying about what's taking place. So the nation of Israel and the Jewish people are in a desperate state. Things are difficult. The word's about to come back, and God's going to stir up Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls. So if you got your outline, grab it. I tell them the message, a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. And I'm going to talk about calling because we're going to see that. That's really what this chapter is about, is Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer was a position of great faith. You had to have a lot of faith in, the, in your cupbearer if you're a king, because he's literally making sure you don't get poisoned to death and die. So you want someone you can trust, somebody who can't be bought off to put poison in your food or in your drink. And so he's in a position of some esteem. He lives in the palace, and uh, you know he's somebody the king trust completely, but he's also a slave. So Nehemiah is a slave, been taken captive, and they're now under Persia, no longer under Babylon. As we've been talking about with Daniel, we saw that the Medo-Persians overcame Belshazzar, and Darius was king, and now Cyrus is king, and now Azarias is king. And so they are ruling and reigning, and as they are ruling and reigning, again, he is a slave and a servant who's a cupbearer. Now, if you were wanting to build a wall around a city, would you look for a chef? Would you look for a cupbearer? This is not the guy you would pick. What does a cupbearer know about construction? Not much, but you know what he does know? He knows when he's being called. And that's what we're going to see in tonight's text. So point number one, if you're truly called, you can't do anything else. We're going to see that Nehemiah is going to lose sleep over this, where everyone else is aware of it and nobody's doing anything about it. But for him, it's all-consuming. It's all he can think about. It's, all he can, it's just consuming every thought, every desire that he has is to go and fix what has been broken. Number two, the burden becomes so, so heavy, it drives you to your knees in prayer. You know, your heart breaks for those the Lord is calling you to serve. When I first became a youth pastor back in 1985, that means I'm old. So back in the 80s, when I first became a youth pastor, it was amazing how God gave me a heart for teenagers. I would be driving uh, on the way somewhere, and I'd see a bunch of teenagers in a parking lot, and I'd get out and just go talk to them. On, on weekends, I'd go down to, uh, with another guy to help with the youth, and I would, because they're all in line at the 
movie, movie plex, and we just stand there and go up to teenagers and just start talking to them. And I had a burden for them because they're a, such an important part of their life. They're making a decision about their future, and a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. Before you knew it, I was opening up my, I had a pool in my backyard, so I was opening up my house to the youth group. I'd come home from work, there'd be 20 teenagers in my pool, and I'm flipping hamburgers and hot dogs, and I just want to hang out with them. I just want to pour into their lives. We're starting, we're starting uh, we had Bible clubs on a bunch of schools all over the Antelope Valley, and we're just doing everything we can to reach these kids. And so a burden is a spawning ground of a calling, and when, some, when something is stirring you up, when the Lord is stirring you up, when the Holy Spirit is calling you, you can't do anything else, and it will drive you to your knees, and you will find yourself interceding on, and praying on behalf of those you're called to minister to. Something else we're going to see is uh, we're going to overcome a, a way that people think about this, but even the strongest of men is brought to tears and mourning. Often I think when you think of a man crying, you think he's weak. We're going to see Nehemiah weeping and wailing when he hears how Jerusalem has been destroyed and how it has not been rebuilt as he would have hoped. It's going to bring him to his knees. It's going to cause him to weep. And you're going to think, well, if he weeps, it's a sign of weakness. You know what it is? It's a sign that he cares. It's a sign that has a burden on his heart. You know when we weep the most? When we care the most. Amen? When we love the most. That's when we weep the most. And by the way, he's in good company because in the Bible, Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet because he wept all the time for the people of Jerusalem that were not getting saved. For King David, who was, that guy's a man's man and a half. He fought Goliath when everybody else was wimping out. He led them into, into wars and battles. He had spears thrown at him by Saul and went back and ate lunch at his house again. That's crazy, right? If you go to someone's house for dinner and he throws a spear at you, I'm thinking you don't want to go back. But King David was a man's man, but he was also a man who wept. So too was Paul. Paul wept. It's in the book of Acts. He wept over the hearts of the people. And we know that Jesus wept three times that are recorded in Scripture. He wept over Jerusalem, seeing the hearts of the people. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus because of the fact that death and sin separates us. And just to see the people mourning over someone they loved who was separated from them, even though he was about to raise him from the dead. And then thirdly, he wept in the garden when he was about to go to the cross of Calvary. And so we're going to see that while Nehemiah is a tough guy, we're going to see Nehemiah not flinch. We're going to see this guy, when the enemy's coming, hold a sword in one hand and build a wall with the other one. This is the guy who would not flinch. This is a man who did not fear. He is a man's man and a half, and he wept over what was taking place in Jerusalem. And then thirdly, along with the burden becomes so heavy, it drives you to your knees, you step out in faith, trusting in the promises of God. You know, we can have confidence that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. We can have confidence that when God calls us to do something, that what the Word of God says is true. And one of the things we should do is we should pray according to the Word. We saw that with Daniel on Sunday. We saw it with Ezra last week. I think God's driving prayer home for our church because three chapters in a row, because most of this chapter is gonna, we're going to see Nehemiah praying. So a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. Let's begin They're looking. If you're truly called, you can't do anything else. Let's begin looking there. It might be good if I was in the right book of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 1. By the way, if you've been reading through the Bible with us on the program, you also saw Bildad the Shuhite this week in Job, and I told you Nehemiah was the second shortest guy, so there we go. All right, let's begin there in verse 1. Look what it says there. The words of Nehemiah, the son of of Hakaliah. Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh comforts. So that tells us that he was born and raised in a godly home. Even though he was born in captivity, his parents still named him after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and named him Yahweh comforts. Not much known about uh, Nehemiah outside of what's written in this book. It's thought that Nehemiah was of the tribe of Judah since Jerusalem is a place where his father's uh, fathers were buried, so more than likely he's of that tribe, and he's going back home, even though he hadn't been there himself, but generations before him had. Some say he might have been related to David, though not proven. And because there's no mention of a wife, some have suggested that he may have been a eunuch. We don't know if he is or not. I believe Daniel was as well. Often when you serve the king, they didn't want you to be distracted by a marriage. 
And what they would do is they would make you into a eunuch so your focus would be completely on what you're called to do. Hakaliah, his dad's name, means whom Yahweh enlightens. Now it says there, it came to pass in the month of Shizlev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now, Sislav, they have different calendar. The Jewish calendar is totally different. Uh, that would be November, December, so it's in winter time. That's going to be significant when we get to the end of the chapter. Um, it notice it says, in the 20th year, it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes. That's how I know it's 445 BC, because Artaxerxes began to reign in 465 BC. Now, here's some bonus points. Where did we see Shushan before? Like Sunday. Who remembers? When Daniel had his vision, it was actually chapter 8, when Daniel had his vision about Persia, where did he, when he was dreaming, he was in Shushan or Susa, that's an abbreviation, and he was around the river Ulai. Now what's interesting is that he had this vision or this dream that he was having, and it was about the Persians taking over, and in his vision he was in what would be the Persian capital where it wasn't even a part of Persia yet. Now we fast forward to this part of Scripture, and that's exactly where they are. It's in Shushan is, point, is actually the Persian capital of the entire area. It's where Esther, as we'll see in the next book, where Esther would live and reign as queen. And so he is serving in the palace, in the capital of the Persian Empire that took over for all of Babylon. And that city today is in modern-day Iraq. So it's in Iraq, it is a Persian city, and it is, again, the capital building. So he's living in the palace. He is serving alongside the king. And I'll tell you what, if he had to be a slave, this might be the best job as a slave. Because no doubt he's, we know he's eating all the same food, because he's got to eat it before the king can eat it. So he's eating the king's food, he's living in a palace, he's got it pretty good. And you know what, you would think it'd be easy for him to just be comfortable for the rest of his life. But we're going to see that in the midst of his comfort zone, God is going to stir this man up. He's going to stir him up so much that in, in the future chapters, he's going to go and seek the king to say and ask him to do something that seems crazy. You know, when you have a good cupbearer, you don't want to lose that guy. When you have a guy that's been tasting your food for years and making sure there's no poison in it and you've got to a place where you trust him, it's hard to get rid of that guy. It's hard to let that guy go but we're going to see that God is going to do a work. So he's in a fortified palace, and right away we know that he is an important man, a man of stature, and a man who is highly trusted. Verse 2, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came to me from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So we're going to see later that Hananiah is actually his brother, one of his actual physical brothers. And he had traveled from this distance, about a thousand miles each way, visited Jerusalem, spent some time there, and came back. Now, in those days, there was really no other way to get word about a faraway place. A thousand miles in ancient times might as well have been the moon. I mean, you know, unless somebody goes there and sees it and comes back, how in the world are you going to know? And so it's been 150 years since Zerubbabel left. It's been over 60 years since Ezra left. And no doubt they could have thought, well, they've rebuilt the whole city. The temple's up. Everything's amazing. I wish I could go visit. And so his brother comes back and he's gonna, he says, hey, what's happening with the, all the people that have gone back? Is it back into its former glory? What's going on in Israel? What's going on in Jerusalem? What's taking place there? So concerning the Jews who had escaped, the word there in original language is delivered. We know they didn't escape. The king allowed them to go back. And Nehemiah, though in a position of both privilege and comfort, is concerned about his people. See, often we get so comfortable, we cease to be worried about anybody else. Well, I'm comfortable. Yeah, they're suffering, but I don't know them, and it's not me, as long as my family's okay. We're seeing that this is the beginning of his calling. Because here's a man who, like I said, is very comfortable, could live the rest of his life that way, but he still has a burden for God's people. He's still worried about his distant cousins. He's burdened about a city he's never seen, and he's burdened about people he's never met, but he knows they're God's people. He knows that's God's land of promise, and he knows that 
that's where the place where worship should be taking place and the sacrifices should be made. And so he, when his brother comes back, he asks him, can you please tell me what is going on? Nehemiah had curiosity and concern about the Jewish brethren and the condition of the city itself. It's interesting that his brother later, this brother right here, will be made governor over Jerusalem by Nehemiah. I'm blowing the gig for you. Nehemiah's going to get there, okay? And when he gets there and he starts to reign, he's going to have his brother become the governor over the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, though in a position of both privilege and great comfort, is concerned about God's people. And Nehemiah's body was in Persia, but his heart was in Jerusalem, even though he had never been there. You know, for us, the greatest comparison is our our bodies are, on, are in the world or on this planet, but our hearts are in heaven, even though we've never been there. Amen? That's the place we long for. That's where home really is. And we long for the day when we'll be with the Lord. We might think that a, prophet, a, a prominent man like Nehemiah had more important things to do than think about, again, a distant city he'd never been to and a people he was a stranger to. Yet because his heart was for the things of God, with God's people, his heart was not for himself, but for others. Truly, when you see people who are called to ministry or even called to raising children, they have a love for someone outside of themselves more than themselves. That's the very definition almost of what it means to be in ministry. It's where you're, you're not a minister, you minister to others. Others are more important than you. You esteem others greater than yourself. You have agape love that is selfless instead of selfish. That's the only reason you make yourself available. It's the only reason you would sacrifice time to minister to somebody else. But when you're called to do it, you can't do anything else. It's a get to and not a have to. Amen? And we're going to see what happens in the heart of Nehemiah. A burden truly is the spawning ground of a calling. Nehemiah said this, had, had the heart of, of Psalm 137, and it says this, I forget you, O Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I don't remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, if Jerusalem was special to God, then it was special to Nehemiah. Most of you know I've had some pretty major health problems, and I've been to, I've been to like seven specialists now, and I've already been in the hospital twice this week for tests. And I had two divine appointments, and my first one, I'm sitting in a waiting room, I've got an IV in my arm, getting ready to go in for a CAT scan, and this guy's sitting across from me, and he's a, he's a Muslim Palestinian, and you're a pastor. And we're sitting there, and he starts saying to me, hey, and he said something about, what am I, why are you drinking contrast water? I don't have to drink that. And, he's, and I could tell, and I said, where are you from originally? He said, I'm from Jerusalem. I said, oh, praise the Lord, man. I love Jerusalem. We're supposed to be there right now. But they canceled our trip. He said, why do you go there? I said, because I'm a Christian pastor. He's like, oh, well, I'm a Muslim, and I'm a Palestinian, and you can't possibly on the, be on the side of Israel because they're stealing our land, and they're kicking us off our land, and that's what you need to understand. What do you think about that? I said, I think you're completely and totally wrong. That's what I think about that. I'm pro-Israel. I'm more pro-Israel than Jews are because God is the one who gave Israel the, the land that they live in, and that land has been there since God said so over th almost 4,000 years ago. So they're not taking their, your land from you. You're on their land that belongs to them. And he's like, whoa, I didn't expect to hear that. And I said, well, that's where we're at. And then he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim. And I said, oh, let, let's talk about that for a second. I said, you know, in the Quran, it says that Jesus is a prophet. And he said, you're, yeah, does it say that? He said, yeah, it does. I said, so how many times can a prophet lie? And he said, none. I said, well, that's good, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So your Quran teaches you that Jesus is the only way to heaven, because it says he's a prophet, and this is what Jesus said. By the way, Muhammad was a pedophile, and he killed people who would not convert. So do you want to put your faith in a man who even the Quran does not say can get you to heaven, or the one that the Quran says can get you to heaven? His name's Jesus Christ. And I'm like, and then two guys walk in. One guy walked in and goes, dude, I'm getting, i got to sit in on this. I've been, <laughs> he was out in the hallway, and he's like, dude. And so we started talking. We talked for another half an hour. He went in for his treatment. I went in for mine. I walked out. I handed him my card. I gave him a hug. I said, I'm praying for you, bro. Just remember what I said. Even the Quran says that Jesus is the only way. 
because it says that he's the prophet. So guys, here's the point though. Divine appointments happen, amen? And this is what's happening in the light. He's, he's going to go back because why? Because God has stirred him up that this is where he is called to be. And like we have a burden for heaven where our home is. He's never been there, but he has a burden. And his heart's going to break when he hears what his brother has to tell him. We see divine appointments and again, praise God for his grace. By the way, then I went in and the lady that did my program, I started talking to her about the Lord and then she teared up and told me that her husband had just left her. I spent 20 minutes praying with her, had a chance to love on her. See guys, wherever we go, let's be salt and light, amen? I had nothing to do with any of it. And Nehemiah is just going to respond to the calling that God is placing on his life. Now look what happens in verse 3. So his brother comes back, tell me all about it. I've never been to Jerusalem. You know, know, can you imagine? People aren't going to heaven and coming back, by the way. But if someone did, do you think we'd we'd have any questions? If my son Mark showed up right now, I'd hug him for about about 500 hours. Then I'd say, tell me about heaven, right? And so he's like, tell me what's happening in Jerusalem, verse 3. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So here's the description that he gives him. He lets them know they're afflicted. The word there means uh, they're under the affliction of evil. It means unpleasant. It means in pain and in misery. He says those who are there are in pain and misery. They're being afflicted by the people that surround them. It also says in that text, they're a reproach. The word reproach, reproach there means they're taunted and scorned by the enemy. Josephus, if you know who that is, he was, he's an historical writer. And Josephus was not, a, was not a follower of Yahweh. He was not a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he was an historical writer during that time. And here's what he wrote was taking place during the time of Nehemiah. Here's what it says. It says, the neighboring nations did a great deal of mischief to the Jews, while in the daytime they overran the country and pillaged it, and in the night they did mischief, inasmuch as not a few were led astray captive out of the country, out of Jerusalem itself, on the roads during the daytime, people would attack and kill them and leave them dead in the middle of the road. So here's what's taking place when they should be worshiping in the temple. They should have the walls surrounding it. The gates are up. And sadly, there's no gates, there's no walls, there's no separation, there's no protection. They're in a place of reproach. They're in a place of distress. And again, why are they? Because there are no walls around them to protect them. So the people are being afflicted by the nations that surround them, enduring pain and misery, taunted, scorned, attacked. Boy, it sounds like Jerusalem today, isn't it? Amen? That the people that surround them, attack them, scorn them, mock them, nothing new under the sun. So the people are not safe, or, or that are not safe are under attack, and the rest of the verse tells us why. And again, it's because the walls have been torn down. So it's important that we have walls. Again, they protect us and they separate us. I had a coworker who was very, 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 very liberal, and she would say things like, you're a Christian, we should just let everybody in. And, and, she's, and she was a big Bernie Sanders person. I'll give you an idea. So I just said, I said, look, I'll tell you what. I'll agree to let all the people in, and I'll, I'll vote for Bernie Sanders. You only got to do one thing. She's like, whatever it is, I'll do it. I said, take the front door off your house. She goes, what? I go, take the front door off your house. Why do you have a door? Do you lock your door at night? Why do you do that? Well, I got to keep the bad people. Oh, you got to keep the bad people out. we're all for immigration. We just want to keep the bad people out, the people that bring drugs with them or whatever. Amen? And this, but this, the whole point is that the protection is there. Now, God's in control, and we love everybody. We want to see people saved, but we've seen crime go up and everything else go up. And, and we're the, is there any country in the world you can just show up, walk across their border, and they'll take care of you for the rest of your life and not take care of the veterans who fought for you? And I'm, not, I, I'm getting, I've been hanging out with Rob McCoy. I got to stop this. Okay. I'm not, I'm not that political. I'm really not. But the point I'm making is in this context, it's all about why is a wall important? Because a wall keeps them safe. The gates keep them from the enemy just attacking them. When the wall is down and when the gates are down, they're easy pickings. Everything they fix, they come in and destroy it. 
They have no safety. They have no peace of mind. So here's Nehemiah hearing this. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. I don't know what he had in his mind, but no doubt he probably thought the temple was up and running, the gates were up, the walls were up, everything had been repaired, they're worshiping the true and living God, and imagine and hope that one day he could go and see the temple and worship the Lord and make sacrifices, maybe be there for Passover someday. And then he finds out none of that's happening. It's all been destroyed. There's nothing there. It's been that way for 150 years, and no one has fixed it. Guys, again, in our own lives, we need walls and gates. We need to have things in place to protect us from the things that can hurt us. I think in Job where he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I might not sin against thee. 140 years after Nebuchadnezzar tore them down and burned the, gate, the city gates, they're still in the same state. And again, walls and gates are for separation and protection. Israel had neither. The bad state of the people and the bad state of the city walls were uh, intimate, or intimately connected. You know, if you don't have protection, then you also don't have people that feel safe. So then the society is a mess. And here he is, this man of God who is burdened for the things of God. And in the ancient world, a city without walls was a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense. They had no protection. An unwalled city was always vulnerable, unable to be to safely house people and valuables. If there was anything of value in the unwalled city, it would be stolen uh, easily because there was no way to stop them. So this is the city. He hears that this is the, that what's taking place. And if you're truly called, you can't do anything else because watch what's going to happen to Nehemiah when he hears this. The burden becomes so heavy, it drives you to your knees in humble prayer. Look what it says in verse 4. So it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. So after hearing it, sorry, this is bugging me a little bit. After hearing what had happened, this man, who's a man's man, this is a guy who's a tough guy, we're going to see it later, a man who's not easily afraid, a man who will stand when nobody else will, when he hears that, it buckles his knees. He sits down and he begins to weep. The word for weep here in the original language means non, in a paraphrase, non-stop flowing tears. Just tears flowing continuously down this man's face. He is so broken, heartbroken over what he hears. Again, he can't be intimidated, but his heart can be broken because of what he hears about what's happening to the, the place of the Lord and the place of God's people. We'll see in coming chapters as he stands unflinchingly firm in the face of attacks and great opposition, yet upon hearing these words of attacks on his people and the condition of the walls and the city gates, he collapses into a chair or he's set on the ground and he weeps and mourns. Notice it says there, for many days. He was inconsolable. It was so overwhelming to him, he just sat there and wept and mourned. The word for mourn, then look what it says, he wept and mourned for many days. The word mourn there, literally part of it means to wail. He was wailing. He was, so he was weeping, he was crying, and he was wailing. Now what's amazing about this is a lot of other people knew about this. And we don't know if anybody else is crying because we don't see it recorded. I doubt it. Uh, people have come and gone over these 150 years. People knew what was taking place. They were just living their lives with, with no walls and no gates and the enemy running amok. And nobody's doing anything about it. But Nehemiah hears about it and Nehemiah can't even do anything else. He comes to the end of himself. He's completely broken when he hears about it. His heart is stirred up and he begins to just weep and mourn. His response, especially for such a tough and a strong man, was extreme. Again, no strength in his legs. He collapsed. He's weeping. Why was a mighty man impacted so deeply? Because he cared. He cared. Obviously, clearly, he cares more than anyone else. We don't see anybody else with this heavy of a burden over the city. Oh, well, yeah, that's what's going on over there, but I'm back here now. I'm not worried about it. That's 1,000 miles away. Yeah, we checked it out. It's not what it should be. That's unfortunate. Nehemiah hears it. He doesn't want to do anything else. He's got a one-track mind. 
His focus on how do we fix this? How do we change this? How do we go back and, and make the city what God wanted it to be? That's the land of promise. We got out of burden, uh, you know, out of, he delivered us out of Egypt and brought us into the land of promise. And now it's been destroyed. And, and it's, they sent them back to rebuild it 150 years ago. And then another group 60 years later, and still it's in disrepair. Why in the world is it like this? You can see when it's a burden, it's something that becomes a one-track mind. He's going to lose sleep over it. He's going to start fasting and praying and crying out to God. And thankfully, somebody did. He cared about God's work. He cared about God's people. Nehemiah, hearing how far God's people were from all they, that God had for them, and the state of the city, he wept, he mourned, he was heartbroken. And again, some see it as weakness. But weeping, it's been referred this way. Someone told me this one time, and I agree with it. He said, weeping is like a language because it communicates something even without words. When you see somebody weeping, it says a lot, doesn't it? It tells you a lot, especially if they'll weep openly, especially if they'll weep in front of other people, especially if their weeping goes on, especially if they're wailing with it. You know, when you're grieving, that weeping is so deep. When you're in that place where you're heartbroken about something, you could, and I, you know what, it's amazing to me because the Bible tells us that God sees every tear and he collects every tear. And when we get to heaven, he's going to wipe away our tears. Amen? So tears are not something that we should be ashamed of. I'm going to be super transparent with you. My wife said something to me about six weeks after Mark died. I would cry five, six hours a day. I just cried all the time. And I was standing by the sink and I was weeping uncontrollably. Now, my wife grew up in a family where nobody cried. Nobody said, I love you. Very stoic family. Now, she's been a Johnston long enough that, you know, we've worn off on her, okay? But she said something to me. She said, babe, you've always been the strongest man I know. But for the last six weeks, last six weeks, you've been the weakest man I know. I would always look at you and go, if he's okay, we're okay. But all you're doing is weeping, babe. And I said, well, in his weakness, in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Amen. There is a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. Amen? And you know what? We, and why do, I, why do we weep so much? Because we care so much. You know, those who love deeply weep, weep greatly. Amen? And they grieve greatly. And that's exactly what's taking place here. He is undone when nobody else is. Because he cares more than everyone else does. And he's going to care enough that he's going to try to go. We're going to see in a couple of chapters. He's going to go talk to the king and say, hey, I, want, I know I'm a slave. I know I'm your servant. I know you trust me more than anybody. I know that I protect your life. I want you to let me go back and build a wall around a city you don't care anything about. But he's going to ask, why? Because God is the one who stirs him up. And when the Holy Spirit stirs you up, you can't say no. Well, you can, but if you do, you're going to be miserable. In Psalm 56, 8, speaking of weeping, this deep communication without words, it says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You collected all my tears in your bottle. You recorded each one in your book. God knows the heart and the mind behind every tear. In Revelation 21, he said, and he will work. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. Guys, we weep now, but we will never weep again once we get to heaven. Amen? In the weeping, Nehemiah was in great company, as I mentioned at the beginning, that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. You know, my dad was a pastor for 60 years. I wish you guys could have met him. I, I, I don't think anybody in this room has ever met my dad. We do have a few of his messages online, but they're on our website. You can go to it, look up Johnny Johnston, but they're later in his life, in his 80s. So there's shorter messages, don't quite have some of the power they did in his younger years. But we called him the weeping prophet. People used to call him Johnny Jeremiah Johnston because every time my dad read scripture, he would cry. He'd be reading through a verse and he would just stop because he had such reverence for God's word. And because he loved the Lord so much and held his word, he called it the scriptures. I'm reading the scriptures and he'd just start crying. And you know what, though? I think that we, we need to have a tender heart toward the Word of God. We need to have a tender heart toward the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And that's what Nehemiah has, but nobody else does. And it's so sad, and it's so tragic. And by the way, if God's calling you to do something that nobody else wants to do, then by all means do it. Can I get an amen to that? 
We need that person who says, I don't, nobody else wants to do it, but I'm called to do it. Don't worry about getting approval from someone else. If the Holy Spirit tells you, you be faithful to that. So Nehemiah not only wept, he mourned. He mourned for many days, again, a loud wailing. The news of Jerusalem and its current state left him wailing for days. So many others knew of this state, but none responded like Nehemiah. He had God's heart for God's people and God's city. And again, the burden is a spawning ground of a calling. Notice he says also, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he doesn't just sit and weep and wail. He does that. But then what does that do? It drives him to pray. And guys, that's my heart. Like if you're grieving or if you're weeping or heartbroken over something, I pray that, yes, we can weep. But we all, it also should drive us to take some action, amen, to pray. You know, my burden for my son who went to heaven at 28 years old gave me a burden to pray for others that had the same depression struggle that he had. In the meantime, I've been ministering to some of those people. People that have lost children since Mark died. The sheriff's department sends them my phone number, and I'm ministering to families that have gone through the same thing. See, we don't want our suffering to be wasted, amen? And we want to see that, yeah, we're weeping over what's taking place, and we want to take some action. And you know what we need to do? We need to cry out and ask God to give us direction. Lord, I can just hear Nehemiah, I'm, Lord, I'm stirred up. Lord, I can't sleep. I'm mourning over this. I, Lord, what can I do? I, and he's gonna, we're going to see his prayer in the next few verses. He's going to cry out to God and say, Lord, you're stirring me up. What should I do? Now, fasting and prayer, again, we've seen this the last couple of weeks. The Bible talks about fasting and prayer. We see so many people fast and pray, Nehemiah and Isaiah and we know Jesus and all these other people in the Bible that fast and pray. And fasting, what it does is it denies your fleshly desires so you can focus on spiritual ones. So you, instead of making dinner and sitting at a table, you spend time with Almighty God. And we need to fast and pray more. And he's fasting and he's crying out to Almighty God. Notice it says there, he prays to the God of heaven. Guys, it's one thing to pray and it's another thing to know who you're praying to. You know, people say, well, I'm spiritual. That means absolutely nothing. People say, well, I'll say a prayer for you. That's great. Who are you praying to? Amen? We pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We don't just pray to the spirits. We don't just pray to the sky. We don't just pray to... And I, I don't even like to use the term God as much as I like to say Jesus, because there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen? It's not Allah. It's not... It's Jesus. He's the answer. And so... He was fasting and praying. He was taking the focus off of himself. Many times a concern will come over us and then quickly pass. But if it's from the Lord, it will abide and grow and the burden will remain until the problem that has prompted us for the burden is solved. Sometimes we'll have a moment where we think, you know what? How many of you have ever heard a missionary speak and thought at least for a minute that you should just sell everything and go to the mission field? It happens. Somebody comes and you see this need and you go, oh, there's a need there. We could do that. I could do that. And you think about it and then you go home and have dinner and move on with your life. And sometimes we get stirred up for a moment. But in this case, we're going to see that it's not going to leave Nehemiah. We're going to see that while you know you get out of that momentary rush of, I need to go, I need to fix this. This is wrong. I need to do something about it. Well, it never lets go of Nehemiah's heart. His reaction went beyond an immediate emotion and continued to grow. He takes the focus off of himself, his own fleshly needs by fasting, and he fervently seeks the Lord. And again, he prays to the God of heaven. Nehemiah is a man of action, but he's also a man of prayer. We're going to see that Nehemiah gets stuff done. We're going to see that Nehemiah is not afraid to fight a war and build a wall at the same time. We're going to see that Nehemiah is a man that other men are going to want to follow. This is a man that God is using mightily. But he's also a man of prayer. And everyone used mightily in Scripture not only suffers greatly, but they need to be people that pray fervently. When you look at people used mightily by God, they're people that pray. Because prayer is the, you know, is the strength that we need. Prayer is the unction that God gives us so that we might faithfully serve Him. The only way we can endure and be faithful in the ministries God's called us to is that we're spending time in his presence. He's going to pray 10 times in 13 chapters. Nehemiah is used mightily 
And he's a man who prays fervently. Verse 5. And I said, so he's praying to the Lord. He's fasting and he's praying. Wouldn't it be great to hear his prayer? Well, here we go. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those that love you and observe your commandments. Now we saw this on Sunday. We're seeing it again. And we see it in the Lord's prayer. Each of these prayers start the same way. Glorifying God. Speaking of the greatness of the God that we serve. You'll hear me pray, and almost every time I pray, I begin with, you know, you're the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God, and we worship you. And you know why we should start off with the greatness of our God? Because first of all, he's the reason that we pray. He's the one that we're praying to. But also when we recognize the greatness of our God, it also makes everything else we're going to pray for nothing in comparison because our God is greater than any trial, any foe, any difficulty, any disease, anything that we face, even our grief. He's greater than all of it because he is a great and an awesome God. And your, and your trials are only great if your God is small. We don't serve a small God. We serve a great God. Amen? So how does he begin his prayer? He begins it by praising God and speaking of the greatness of God. And it's a reminder to him as well of who our God is. Prayer is essential for leadership. If your vision is so big that only God can accomplish it, then you obviously must pray. And if prayer isn't necessary to accomplish your vision, your goal isn't big enough. Guys, sometimes we got to step out and, and put our foot in the river before it parts. And we need to get in a place where at least... I feel like at least four or five times a year, we need to be in a place where we're scared half to death we do, to do it, and we do it anyway, because God said so, amen? Where we get out of our comfort zone, and we step out in faith, and we trust that God will be faithful to his word. And you notice how he's praying, the oh great and awesome God who keeps your covenant and mercy with those who love you. See, God had given them the land of promise, and he told them that, that uh, generations from King David would reign and that they would always reign. And he's saying, look, you've made a promise, Lord, and I know you're faithful to your promises, and I know what those promises are, because I've, I've read your bio, the, the book, I've read the law, I've read the book of Moses, I know what the Word of God says, and I know what your promises are, and I know you're faithful to them, so Lord, I want to hold you to that. And you know what? I think the more we read the Word, the more we can pray according to the Word. Sometimes we don't pray in confidence because we don't know if what we're praying is okay. It's okay for me to ask for a raise at work. I get those calls all the time. Pastor Dave, so if I pray for a promotion, is that okay? Now, yeah, it's okay as long as that's not more important than your relationship to the Lord. Amen. It's okay to pray for that. But you know what? When you pray according to what the Word of God says, you can pray with confidence. Amen. Bible says, if you raise him in a child, the way he should go when he's old and not depart from. Lord, I, I know what your word of God says. I know that my kids have walked away from you, but I know what your word says. And Lord, I was faithful to raise them the way you called me to raise them. And Lord, I'm asking in Jesus' name that you will be faithful to that promise and that you'll draw my kids home. Guys, we, we need prayer throughout the Bible where we can stand up and say, this is what the word of God says. And we can pray this with confidence because God is faithful to his word. Amen? And so when we read the Bible and we know what the word of God says, it's going to change your prayer life. And I want to tell you this too, and the more you pray, the more deep and rich your time in the Word of God will be, right? You've heard it said, what's more important, praying or reading the Bible? What's more important, inhaling or exhaling when you breathe, amen? You need them both, and you can't have one without the other. It doesn't work. Lord God of heaven, oh great and awesome God, Nehemiah begins his prayer with praise, the greatness of our God, and in humility, Nehemiah's prayer focuses on the greatness of God, not on himself. You know, it's interesting. Guess what? He's going to pray this prayer continually, and it's going to take four months for God to answer his prayer. Do you know God answers all your prayers? He answers them all. He says yes. He says no. And our favorite one, he says wait. Guess how long it's going to take him to rebuild the wall? 52 days. It takes him four months to get an answer to his prayer. Takes 50 days to 52 days to build it. You know why it took 52 days, only 52 days to build it? Because it was bathed and it was on a foundation of four months of prayer. Amen. Guys, we have not because we ask not. We need to be people of prayer who seek the Lord and get direction from Him. He says, You're to those who love you and observe your commandments. Guys, when we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. Amen. And he's saying, Lord, you're faithful to the promises of those who follow you, those who obey you. Now, obedience doesn't save you, but obedience is fruit of salvation. 
And when we honor the Lord, if you walk in open rebellion against God, he's not going to bless you. I say this all the time, rebellion or fellowship, choose one. You can't walk in open fellowship with God while walking in open rebellion. And when you're in rebellion, you won't have fellowship. So what do we need to do? We need to choose to obey God. And if you're walking, and you can't rebel against God and mock God and live your life contrary to his word and then be mad at God when your life falls apart. Because the Lord, those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. And you know what? Sometimes the best thing that can happen to you when you're in rebellion is that you come to the end of yourself so you might look up again. Amen? And so in this case, he's just saying, look, the people who are faithful and follow you, Lord, the people that love you, the people that obey you, you bless them. And again, it isn't always the blessings that we think of in this world. Then he says in verse 6, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We know that Nehemiah was a godly man, but notice when he prays, he puts himself in the same place of even those who were chasing after idols. He says, look, my father's generation, they're the reason we got thrown into captivity in Babylon. The generations that went before me, they were not honoring you, Lord. Lord, could you draw us back home? Lord, can you forgive us? He's crying out for forgiveness. He's seeking restoration for God's people. Humility understands our complete dependence upon God. He's like, Lord, please hear my prayer and recognizes the greatness of God. Nehemiah desperately asked for God to hear his prayer. To hear the prayer of your servant reflects his complete dependence upon God. And only God can help. And if he, if, only if he hears, I know he will help. Here's what he's saying. I know that if God hears my prayer, he will help me. So his prayer is, Lord, please hear my prayer. Lord, please hear what I'm praying. Because our God is great, our trials and suffering and needs are small. God will allow you to be fruitless to expose your need for total dependence. You know, too often a ministry is built on a man instead of being built on the Lord, or it's built on a group of people. And they take the credit, and they talk about how amazing they are and how gifted they are. It's the most nauseating thing on this planet. I was in... I was in uh, D.C., and I was at a table with a bunch of other Calvary guys. Were sitting, Jack Hibbs was there and a few other guys. And they, and they had these different people coming up to speak, and this guy came up. And I'm not exaggerating. His introduction was 12 minutes of how amazing this guy was. Oh, he's done this, and he started this, and he's done this, and he's done this. And it went on and on. Then he got up and started telling everybody how great he was. And I leaned over to the guys at the table. I'm like, man, what would God do without that guy on his side, right? And there's a mentality that we want to take the credit the Bible says that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He doesn't need us, we need Him. Amen? And we take no credit and no glory because He does it in spite of us, not because of us. And any gift I have or any gift you have is only because God gave it to us, and He gave it to us so He gets all the glory. Amen? And Nehemiah, he's humble. He's coming humbly before Him. Lord. He confesses the sins which they had sinned against him, both his father's house and I have sinned. Humility will always come with open confession. By the way, don't make excuses for your sin. We saw it on Sunday with Daniel. We don't go, well, Lord, yeah, I'm sorry I did that, but you know it was my wife's fault or whatever, right? It was my boss. It's the woman thou gavest me, right? Instead of just coming, first of all, does God know you're sinning? What's the answer? And does he know whose fault it is? So why do we try to tell him something different than what he already knows? We need to come humbly before him and be transparent. Lord, it was me. Lord, you know it. I know you already know it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I was horrible. Please forgive me. This is 100% my fault. Lord, I've harmed your name. Please forgive me, Lord. Openly confess. Nehemiah is confessing on behalf of the people that he has not even been there. But he's praying and he's confessing. Humility confesses sin openly and it makes no excuses. Verse 7 and that says there in verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and your statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. You know, he's a, a godly man and he openly and passionately identified again with the sins of his father. And what does sin do? It separates us. So Jerusalem at this point has been separated from God for a time. They were dragged away into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They've now gone back into the city but they've not been able to rebuild the temple, I mean, rebuild the, you know, 
protect the temple and keep worship in place. It's come and gone because, and they get caught up in the world. And nobody, they, there's thousands and thousands of Jews there. Why aren't they building a wall? It's been 150 years. You think there'd be one guy that'd come along and go, I have an idea, let's build a wall. They don't do it. They just keep getting run over by the enemy. And they just adapt to the new lifestyle instead of taking a stand for the things of God. We need the health ministry to show up. Let's build a wall. Here's a good idea. Here, I got some tools. Let's go for it. Nobody wants to do it. They're going to have to bring a guy from a thousand miles away who hears from the Lord, who's going to come back and enlist these people to do what they should have done without him being there. And sometimes it takes one person to be bold to wake everyone else up. Amen? Sometimes it takes that one person that on your high school campus to stand for the Lord and say, let's start a Bible club. Sometimes it takes one person in your office or your, the place where you work to take a stand for the Lord that'll stir everyone else up. Sometimes it takes one church in a city to take a stand for the things of God. Continue to have church when the doors are closed because of COVID. Guys, we all need to make a stand for the things of God when God stirs us up. Their distance from God has kept them from being burdened for the things of God. And Nehemiah walked in intimate fellowship with God and is burdened for the things of God. They're no longer burdened, but Nehemiah is. They live in the city and they're not burdened. Nehemiah is a thousand miles away and he is. So final, the second point, the burden becomes so heavy, it drives you to humble prayer. Last point, you step out in faith, trusting in the promises of God. Look at verse 8. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded. Your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now, he quotes Moses because he knows what Moses said. He read the, the, the Septuagint, the first five books of the Bible. No doubt he read other books that had been written at this point, like Job. And he reads it, and he not only reads it, but he applies it. And he says, well, as we know from Moses, if, the peop if his own people walk in rebellion, he's going to scatter them. At this point, they're scattered. At this point, you have people living in Persia. You've got people living in what used to be Babylon. You've got people that have, have gotten dispersed all over the world. He started drawing them back. But he says there, and he's basically praying God's promise, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place of my name. Nehemiah is praying according to the word of God because he knows what the word of God says. And by the way, is this an appropriate verse for what he's going through right now? What's the answer? Absolutely. He's saying, Lord, you promised in your word, you told through Moses, it says, if we'll obey you, you'll bring us all back. Okay. I want to head up the obeying team. I want to go back, and I want to serve you again, and we want to be obedient to you, and I want to stir these people up to obey you, and Lord, we want to come back and, and start sacrificial system again and start honoring you again the way you deserve to be honored and gather our people back into the land of promise that you gave them 1,500 years ago. God had given them the land, well, 1,000 because of Moses, right? They knew through Moses they're going to enter into the land of promise. Remember, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they would not enter in, and now they've abandoned it. People that are living there have gotten you know, so like the society, and they're not standing up for the things of God. Praise God for people like Nehemiah. Praise God for people that will stand up and say something when nobody else wants to. Praise God for people that will pray according to the Word of God when people have gotten away from the Word of God. Praise God for someone who will intercede and pray on your behalf when, when you and I are walking in rebellion. Amen? He's praying for those who are in rebellion. Lord, I'm praying for them. That's intercessory prayer. We pray for those that will not pray for themselves. For those who want nothing to do with the Lord, that God will draw them back. The word remember there, this is a powerful way to come to God, asking Him to remember His promises. Does God forget His promises? What's the answer? So do we need to remind Him? What's the answer? But should we? Yeah. We don't need to remind Him. He's not going to go, oh yeah, I forgot I did that. He's not going to do that. He's God, amen? But you know what? You know, it's like, uh, daddy you promised is something that dads don't necessarily always like. You know what? Our Heavenly Father loves it when you tell him that. 
my kids would say, Daddy, you promised. And, and I had a credo with my, my kids that if I promise, I'm doing it, even if it's to my own harm. And sometimes he would remind me, you promised, and it might be, we're going to bed. You're right. I said, I'd take you over there. To get, all right, get in the car. You know what I mean? I promised. I want to be a man of my word. I'm a fallible man. Almighty God promised. And he loves it, says, when, hey, Dad, you promised. Amen? You know why he loves that? Because he knows we're spending time in his word to know what his promises are. And that we come to him with it. And he loves it when we do. Praying according to his promises, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. When we pray according to his will, we can pray with humble confidence. While we often fail on our own promises, God is always faithful to his word. When was the last time you came to God with a promise you found in his word that aligns with your current situation? Maybe some of you have never done that. Literally, like you're, whatever you're going through, open up the word of God and ask God to show you a promise that you can bring to him. Lord, this is the situation you promise. This is what your word says. Lord, I come humbly before you. I don't tell God anything. We don't tell God anything ever. Can I get an amen to that? We don't tell God. We come humbly before God. We can come confidently when we know what his word says and it's true to his promise. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray that all the time. The Bible says he's coming quickly. So can we pray that with confidence? What's the answer? We can and we should. Ask God to apply his promise to your life and mine. Your servant Moses saying, if. So unfaithfulness was result which resulted in Israel being taken captive, Egypt and Babylon. God is faithful to his word, promises both uh, in blessings and in consequences. So here's the reality. If, here's God's word. If you disobey it and you're unfaithful to it, you'll deal with righteous judgment and consequences. If you obey God's word, he will bless you and he will be with you and he'll, he'll, he'll give you direction to your life. And so if you return and keep my commandments, I will gather them. So he quotes this conditional promise. There's, Bible, there's promises in the Bible where it says, if then. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will heal them of their wicked ways, right? So there's a lot of promises in the Bible where it's, if you do this, then God will do this. God's always faithful to his side. We need to be faithful to our side. Amen? And so we love Nehemiah's heart. The condition was returning to God and keeping his commandments. Disobedience, rebellion, refusing to repent, results in consequences and righteous judgment. Repentance, faithfulness, and obedience result in blessings of God in a life that is fruitful. Let's finish up. Verse 10. And then it says there, Now, these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now he's reminding God of who these people are, though they are wayward at the moment. He says, these are your people. These are your servants. You've redeemed them by your great power and by your strong hand. I love this. He's saying, God, of course, knows. He's saying, God, you're the one that saved them. You're the one who redeemed them. It's by your mighty hand you delivered them out of bondage. God, these are your people. Of course, God knows it, but he's reminding them. And again, what does that do? It aligns us with what God already knows. It helps us to understand who God is and what he has done. Nehemiah reminds God of what he already knows. These are your people, God. You redeemed them. Hear our prayers. Final verse says this, Lord, I pray, thee, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, his prayer here is where he's going to ask God to do something. And he says there, grant him sight in the sight of this man. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? The king. He's he's saying, Lord, will you show me mercy? Because I'm going to go talk to him and ask him if I can quit being his cupbearer and go to Jerusalem. And Lord, I need you to show me favor with my boss, with the king, so I can leave and go do what you've called me to do. But notice he says, Lord, you grant me favor. But notice when he says, grant me favor, what he's saying is, you know, the prayer of your servant, his prayer 
and to the prayer of your servants who desire and fear your name. You said, why should I, why should I answer your prayer? Lord, because I want your will, because I fear your name, because I know your heart. I want to do what you've called me to do. Please, Lord, grant me favor so I can go do what you've called me to do. Please, Lord, soften this man's heart so I can go faithfully serve you, so I can leave behind this land and travel a thousand miles and fight all the enemies and build a wall that nobody else wants to build. And I'm a cupbearer and I want to go do construction. But Lord, I need your help. Please, Lord, have this man give me favor so I can do what you want. See, when we ask for God to show favor with another person, it shouldn't be so I can get what I want. It's so we can get what God wants. Amen? His prayer is that, hey, God, could you just have the king drop dead and make me king instead? That's not his prayer. His prayer is, you know what? Take me from comfortable, from a place of position, from a place where I eat the best food, where I'm living in the greatest place, where I'm surrounded by wealth and all these things. And Lord, would you answer my prayer and let me get on a donkey and go a thousand miles and go to this faraway land where the enemy's waiting, where the walls are broken down and the gates are burnt down and I haven't had a construction 101 class yet, but Lord, I want to go because you're calling me to go. Lord, will you let me leave comfort to go to what is hard and difficult to serve you? Lord, please, will you give him, give me favor with this guy so he'll let me go suffer for you. That's not a prayer that's prayed very often, but I think that's a prayer that God's going to answer almost always. Amen? Let me leave my comfort. Lord, please use me. He prayed that prayer and he had to wait four months. And he's going to get his answer. I'm giving it away. It's coming up in the, in the coming chapters. So Nehemiah, this is a picture for all of us. Here's a man who is comfortable. His heart is stirred by something he sees. The Holy Spirit prompts him. It drives him to his knees in prayer. He calls out to Almighty God. The burden is so heavy, he can't help but mourn. And he fasts and he prays and he weeps because his heart is broken. And you know what? He stays relentless. And then he comes to God with promises found in his own word. And he asks the Lord would show him favor so he can go do what God has called him to do. I pray that all of us, if you've never been in a place where you have a burden that's so heavy, that it drives you to your knees, I pray that we would all come to that place. That God would stir us up with the gifts he's given us that we might be used for his kingdom and his glory. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for Nehemiah's example. And Lord, I pray that we would not be so comfortable that we miss out on the calling you've placed upon our lives. Lord, stir us up by your Holy Spirit. Show us, direct us, lead us. Your will be done. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Is he